Okay, so the title of these reflections or this talk is Dancing Between Self and Not Self. So I'm really just, you know, continuing our exploration of self and not self and the, the dance between these two poles. And basically one of the things we have been doing and are still doing using different meditative tools and teachings is that we deconstruct our normal solid sense of self, of who I am, that we like take it apart and try to really see through this. And this seeing can come from seeing how the self is being created through comparing, through measuring oneself, or through appropriating aspects of our experience as me or mine, inner objects like emotions, thoughts, my emotions, my anger, or external objects like our positions, for instance. So seeing this really makes us understand that the self is, as we have heard, not an inherently existing thing, but an activity, something the mind does. And, you know, as we have already said, this understanding opens up the possibility of choosing other ways of looking. For instance, looking in terms of not me, not mine. Some of you have practiced with this or in any other way. And this means we become more flexible and playful around different selves, not being stuck just with one sense of self, one small self-definition for the rest of our life. And tonight I would like to again take up the topic of the spectrum of self, the fluidity along this spectrum, and the context-dependent relational nature of self. And then also really look at the question, what are the implications of this? What does that mean for us and for our life and for, you know, living our life? Okay, so again, you know, about the fluidity of self. That is really one of the discoveries it, that can open up to us, this discovery that there is really not just one true self, but the arising of many different selves at different times, depending on context, depending on mind states, as we heard this morning from Kirsten, on, on many things, actually. And it's actually strange how little we seem to notice this we are strangely blind to this experiential truth. And this variability and multiplicity of self has to do with the fact that those processes of self-fabrication that we have mentioned, you know, the comparing, measuring, the appropriation, they never happen out of context. They are always embedded and embedded in and dependent on a context, on a specific situation, a specific constellation. And we can see this in many, many ways, 
this is now also a little bit repetition, you know, how I measure myself or what I pick up as being me or mine depends on a specific situation. And that is the reason for this self then being so unstable, impermanent. You know, we tend to define ourselves through certain labels, concepts, names, social roles, and all those depend on the actual social context that we're in. When I am with my mother, I easily fall back into the daughter role, and my sense of self is very different from when I'm in the teaching role. And this is, again, different from being alone in nature with no other people around, when there is no social feedback, just trees, grass, the sky. So we take on social roles dependent on a given situation. And of course, some labels are more stable than others. For instance, our name and such very stable labels like the name play actually quite a big role in creating this illusion of a stable, enduring self. So I am Yuka, yeah? And this somehow um, proves that I exist because I, since I can remember, I have been Yuka. This name has always been with me. But most of our self-definitions arise temporarily, dependent on certain contexts and constellations. For instance, when we are together with younger people, we might feel pretty old compared to them. But among people who are older, we might perceive ourselves as young and dynamic. So in these constellations, age can become the defining trait of the self because in this moment, age is the characteristic through which we stand out. In this moment, it is the characteristic that distinguishes us from others. But if I'm a woman in a predominantly male group, then it's not so much the age, but rather my gender that will stand out. And so the gender identity becomes much more prominent. Or regarding social, cultural, ethnic identity, it's also just so interesting to see it shifting. I grew up in a different town in Switzerland from Zurich. I grew up in Basel. So when I now speak to people in Zurich, where I live, they usually very quickly identify me as a person from Basel. Oh, you are from there. And then they usually make some stupid joke or comment, haha, oh, you are one of those. And they, some of them try to imitate my dialect. I don't know what's so funny about this dialect, but, you know, it's immediately there. So I'm a person from Basel. However, as soon as I travel to some other European country, I am being perceived and I also perceive myself as a Swiss and then when I go to another continent, like the US or Japan, my dominant identity is that of a European. And in recent years, my identity, when I was in the US, has somewhat shifted more in the direction of being, a, being labeled a POC, a person of color. 
this is not a label I am used to here in Europe, but in the context of this very intense debate around race, race, suddenly I find myself being put into this box. So the way the self is being shaped and defined depends on the total constellation in any given moment that then will highlight certain characteristics and obscure others. And some of you, you know, you have also described about your experiences today, how you have noticed the arising of self in certain circumstances. You know, when there is anger, of course, there is a very different sense of self. So I'm sure all of you know what I'm talking about. And it's just so fascinating to see these shifting um, identifications. And just to point this out, such social labels or categories are examples of sanya, of perception that Kirsten mentioned yesterday. So dependent on the constellation that we find ourselves in, we take up certain labels or concepts and we identify with them. Now, the thing is, we don't just use those names in a functional way, which would be totally unproblematic. It is certainly useful to have designations, to have tools for our communication. No, we don't just use those labels purely functionally, but we also take them up. We appropriate them as being me or mine. And this is precisely where they become the building blocks of self. I am this, I am that. My nationality, my gender identity, my professional role, whatever. So it's not the prop, not the concepts or the names in themselves that are a problem, but our tendency to treat them in an absolute way, to take them as who we really are. But with mindfulness, you know, across many different situations, being aware to the arising of self we really notice how such identities are always depending on those contexts and they only make sense in those contexts. And what can we take from this? What is the conclusion? None of these identifications, none of those rules, uh, roles is ultimately true. No label can claim to represent our true self. Another area where we can see the dependent nature of the sense of self is, of course, the huge dependency of self on relationships, on social feedback, on the approval or disapproval that we get from others. So this sense of whether I feel welcomed and or rejected, whether I feel acknowledged and accepted or ignored, judged. And this is something we can observe each day in all our interactions and encounters with other people, how this sense of self 
in relationship to others is actually in constant flux. It's like a constant negotiation going on. Yeah. Sometimes we feel great, we feel loved, we feel very connected, sometimes miserable. So really, really based on all these, you know, observations, we have only this conclusion that we can really say our self arises dependently on the total situation of self or the world in any moment. It is relational. There is no self outside of or independent of social context. And this is even true, you know, if I'm alone, just by myself, usually I still have internalized so many social experiences from my past that they will still impact the sense who, who, of who I am in this moment. You know, if we have biographical experiences of being neglected or rejected or loved and cared for, experiences of success and failure, etc. Just, you know, our whole history, all those experiences can feed into the present moment. They shape our sense of self in the present moment because they become woven into our thought and emotional habit patterns. So, Normally, we carry around many of our social selves from the past. We carry with us really the burden of our past. And then we bring it into this moment here and now, even if this moment is totally different from the past. So in a way, it's like we project our past, our earlier experiences, into the present moment, on the experiences of this moment. And this can make us repeat certain behaviors, certain social dynamics, because we already come in with certain expectations and with a certain sense of self. And then we act from this place. And usually this just leads to a you know, replay of old situations. And it is really through our practice of mindfulness, of being aware more and more that we can gradually loosen those tendencies and really be attentive to what is actually happening now. So when we are really mindful, when we keep practicing, we become more and more able to see this happen to let go some of those old habits and expectations, we become able to really see memories just as memories. They are not the truth of this moment. And with a lot of mindfulness and wakefulness, clarity, we can really wake up to the total openness and freshness of this moment. And we realize we are not condemned to drag the past into this present moment, that there is a possibility of meeting this fresh moment unburdened. Yeah. Okay, so 
much to or about the dependency on social context. So it's not only the outer context uh, that conditions the sense of self, it's simultaneously also the mind state that shapes and determines our sense of self in any moment, as mentioned by Kirsten this morning. So like when anger is in the mind, the sense of self is probably going to be very intense and strong. We feel very alienated from the other person. Whereas when there is kindness and joy in the mind, our sense of self will feel much more connected, at ease, playful even. We feel accepted and loved. We are literally a different person, aren't we? And also the other is perceived differently, dependent on the mind state. Yeah. So again, repeating what Kirsten said this morning, we can see how self and other arise together and they arise differently, dependent also, um, also on the degree of calm and collectedness in the mind. And this is something that Rob Brubea really pointed out that we can discover that there is actually a whole spectrum of self, a continuum that goes from a very gross, very intense self-sense to a very, very subtle sense of self. This is from his book. In addition to the sense of solidity, contraction and separateness, we could say, too, that the self-sense is experienced along this continuum as more or less gross or refined. So we have a continuum, a spectrum of selves, not just one self. Huh? On one end of the spectrum, we have very gross forms of identification where there is a strong sense of a solid self that feels usually contracted and separated from the world. And at the other end, we have a very refined and subtle sense of self. And actually, the Buddha said something similar by saying that the sense of self can be established in different ways, dependent on the basis that we use to establish the self. So this is from the Potapada Sutta. Potapada, there are these three acquisitions of a self. The gross acquisition of a self, the mind-made acquisition of a self, and the formless acquisition of a self. And he explains then that we can establish a sense of self either by identifying with material objects like the body or our possessions or worldly fame or status. These all fall into the material cate category or by identifying with states of fine materiality, which refers to the first four jhanas like bliss or equanimity, or 
that is the most refined level by identifying with the formless realms, like identifying with boundless space or consciousness. That can be actually one of the last resorts of self that we say, I am the awareness that knows experience. But this too is just an identification. And this is really something that I would like to encourage you to explore in meditation, to be curious about it. What is the sense of self right now in this moment? How is self being established right now? You know, what is the mind taking, acquiring to establish itself on it as a self? So not to be so fascinated by the content of experience and not to become identified with it, but rather keep this inquiry going, you know, really investigate the sense of self, because this is what, what leads to more wisdom. And Really, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether we have a very gross sense of self or a very refined sense of self. Just watch the mind. If, if now you again see the mind going into conceit of, oh, what kind of self do I have? It's really not about measuring the self. The thing is really to see the process of identification going on. This is the most relevant piece that we want to see here. Now, the central insight, anyway, from seeing the variability and multitude of self is to understand the relational and dependent nature of self, to understand that self always arises momentarily, dependent on something or in reference to something, Never, never isolated, never independent from the rest of the cosmos. To again quote Rob, notice that self-fabrication is always tied up with the fabrication of one or more phenomena. We can see that self-construction depends on something being reacted to made an issue or viewed in off or viewed in certain ways. That thing may be conceived as an inner phenomenon or an outer one, but the sense of self cannot be supported without depending on some thing or other as kind of base. Self-construction always relies on clinging, on reactivity and view with regard to something. Yeah, so it's always with regard to something. The self never arises alone. It's always in reference to some other, whatever it is, internal, external, doesn't matter. And it's not just the self, again, we have said that. It's in every moment, the arising of the whole self, other constellationship, a constellation through clinging. So right now, for instance, you know, myself arising 
is in relation to this situation, to, you know, my laptop and to you whom I see on the screen speaking to you. In meditation, the self could arise in relation to the meditative experience. But however we look at it, there is never an isolated self. If you take away relationships, if you take away mind states, if you take away possessions, whatever, you cannot find any remaining self. And to see self in this way, to really understand it as dependently arisen, as relational, contextual, goes against our cultural, common sense notions of identity, of self, of personhood. And it does take practice. It does take meditative contemplation to really take this in, to let it sink in, to understand it deeply, not just on an intellectual level. You know, one moment we might think, okay, I got it, I understand. And then maybe another moment we again think, but that's strange. It's somehow perplexing or confusing. It's, so it's really a process to understand it. And if you find yourself, you know, at times wandering and struggling, just don't bother. Just don't worry. You know, just let the words um, pass. Whenever there is something that you find helpful, you use it and otherwise just forget it. Then it's just not the right thing for you right now. It, it really takes years. I, I can say from my own experience and I'm by far not done with it. You know, it's an ongoing deepening of our understanding. Now, at times... Um, seeing this relational nature of self can really bring up the questions. What are the implications if there is no ultimately real self? Because isn't this something so many of us are seeking to find out who we are really? Maybe we do have this hope that Someday in the future, we will finally have arrived at our true self. We will finally know who we are. And yet, such notions don't really make sense in the light of the dependent nature of self. How can there be a true self, an ultimate self, if this self is a dependently arisen construction of fabrication emerging out of the conditions. But then, if we have understood this, does the fact that our self is a fabricated thing mean that the self is therefore irrelevant, meaningless, that we shouldn't care about it? Does it mean that personal needs and wishes are irrelevant, that we should just let go of personality, of individuality, does not self mean that we shed all responsibility for our actions. So, you know, from 
the solidity and the absolute reality of self, which is one extreme view, we can easily, easily, really fall into the opposite, into completely denying self, which is basically just the opposite extreme. And if we end up in such a place of no self, where we completely deny self and personhood, we have fallen into what we can call a nihilistic attitude in the sense that we don't believe in meaningfulness that is based on personal choices and values where nothing really matters because we think if there is no self, who cares about anything? This is not only a very distorted view, but it is also quite a depressing perspective. It lacks joy, it lacks depth, it lacks purpose and meaningfulness. Now, the Buddha was very clear that his teaching was neither stating the existence of a real absolute self, nor the non-existence of such a self. So in the context of old India, these were the positions of eternalism on one hand, on the one hand, asserting that there was an eternal soul that would experience, you know, like the consequences of one's actions are in, in future lives. And annihilationism, on the other hand, the belief that there was no self at all that would continue to experience the consequences of one's actions. And actually, that was a very debated issue at the time of the Buddha. It was a really hot philosophical topic. And the Buddha didn't take sides with either of them. Instead, he came up with a middle way, a position that avoided those extremes. And this middle way is a bit like the space, you could say, in between the fixed dogmatic ends of there being an absolute real self or no self at all. So there is a space in between where we let go of the rigid and absolutist statements, but where we learn how just to remain in the openness not needing to make ultimate assertions. That's a quote from the Samyukt Agama. Teaching the essence, teaching the Dharma, I avoid these two extremes. Keeping to the middle way, I teach the Dharma, namely, when this is, that is. This arising, that arises. Conditioned by ignorance, activities arise. Conditioned by activities, consciousness arises, and so on. The whole you know, chain of dependent origination. And thus is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So when this is, that is. This arising, that arises. The middle way of the Buddha is a wise understanding of dependent origination. 
the understanding that all phenomena constantly arise and change and cease due to the coming together of causes and conditions. Also the self, of course. And on this basis, it becomes clear that to say a self exists in an absolute sense as a solid, independent entity simply doesn't make much sense. Neither would it make sense to say that a self doesn't exist at all. After, after all, right now I am sitting here and speaking to you. So it would be somehow absurd to say that I don't exist at all. Yeah. So both absolutist claims simply don't make sense in the light of the dependent nature of self. So where does that leave us? Is there a self? Not really. Is there no self? Not really either. <laughs> the Buddha didn't agree with either of them. But he pointed out the dependent conditioned arising of self. So that leaves us in this, you know, middle ground in this middle space. Actually, this understanding frees us from needing to make final statements about the status of self. And it invites a very different way of relating to self. You know, our normal way of relating to experience to self is based most of the time on the very ingrained implicit view that this self is real. And therefore, it's terribly important. It's the center of all my hopes and my wishes, my fears and dreads. And this is the reason why we suffer so much when someone is attacking this self, threatening us or when the self somehow messes up or when the self gets sick. Because if something um, hits me, if I mess up something or if I get sick, it's not just like anyone yeah, who is experiencing this. You know, it would be very different if it were my neighbor. Yeah, it's okay. But if it is about me, that's really relevant. It becomes really much worse. Somehow we just take everything that is happening to this seemingly, seemingly real self as being a, a true statement of who we are, a revelation of our true nature. And then, of course, you know, if the self falls ill, becomes sick, that's devastating for such a self. It becomes so existential. So if we have this sense of a real self, everything that happens to this self makes us draw some conclusions about this self. And given the very uncertain nature of this world, in the end, we are bound to fail. We are bound to get older and sick and die. We know that. Huh? So it's basically a very frustrating business. And we are just stuck there. 
So if we see the self as real also, it becomes super important how this self is, how it is being evaluated, whether it is being liked or not liked by others, whether it's successful or not. And this means this way of seeing the self as real goes together with a lot of clinging. They are like inseparable, yeah? Clinging and the, uh, the ultimately real self, they, they like presuppose each other. And the result of this is a lot of suffering. So much fear arises around this notion of a fixed real self and our perceived need to protect the self, to make it presentable, to make it successful. And we can see this all around us in the world, all the people struggling to somehow have a successful self in a very competitive society. Now, in contrast, if we can stay more in this middle ground between the extreme of eternalism or nihilism, if we can see the self just as a temporary fabrication, not as the ultimate owner of all experiences, we can discover a new way of relating to it with less clinging. Yes, there are actions that yield certain effects, but there is not anymore this sense of a solid self running through all experiences like a thread or a self that is somehow behind all our experiences, owning them. Because these are just thoughts, just constructions. If we actually look at our experience, if we stay close to our phenomenal experience, there is always just this moment now. And there is a certain self or the world constellation arising in just this moment. Already the next moment can bring a very different constellation. There is like birth and rebirth happening moment by moment. And in every moment also, choices are being made. Intentions are being formed that impact the next moment, the next arising of self or the world constellation. But there is no underlying substance somehow holding it together. There are just these very temporary appearances. And with mindfulness, we can be fully aware of this dance of selves emerging, taking form and disappearing like waves. And we become more skilled in making good choices. We become more skilled in forming skillful, wholesome intentions and then to act from them rather than being driven by habit pattern. Not clinging so much to any self-definition, not being so wedded to any identity, also allows us 
to meet times of great change, of loss, of death, to find ease in the midst of huge change and, and you know, loss. It makes it easier then to let perhaps a certain identity fall away, cease when the time comes to let it go. The identity of being the partner of someone who has died. The identity of being the member of a group. Yeah. Whatever it is, because we know it was never ultimately real anyway. It was just temporary appearance, a temporary role we played in the grand theater of life. So it could be the breakup of a relationship, the loss of a beloved one. It could be the loss of our job. It could be the loss of our health. All those events that really threaten our habitual sense of self. We become more flexible to let go of old selves and let new ones emerge. I would like to read you a poem to bring in some of the poetry thing, you know, um, a poem by Ryokan. And Ryokan, he was a quite a famous Japanese monk, quite an unconventional monk. Um, he refused to become an abbot of a monastery, but just preferred to live in the in the woods as a hermit. And he would really enjoy writing poems. And he was very beloved because he, it seems he was an extremely kind person and he also enjoyed playing with the kids. So this is a poem from him. Where did my life come from? Where did my life come from? Where will it go? Meditating by the window of my tumble-down hut, I search my heart, absorbed in silence. But I search and search and still don't know where it all began. How will I ever find where it ends? Even the present moment can't be pinned down. Everything changes. Everything is empty. And in that emptiness, this I exists only for a little while. How can one say anything is or is not? Best just to hold those little thoughts. Let things simply take their way and so be natural and at your ease. Yeah, we cannot pin things down. We cannot pin the self down or the present moment. Actually, nothing really can be pinned down. And that is okay. We can allow this to be just so. And then not clinging to one true self and referencing everything back to this self, we find more ease and peace. We allow things more to take their way. 
But again, this doesn't mean that things don't matter to fall into nihilism. Actually to say, okay, if there is no really existing self, then nothing matters, is actually a very self-centered view, isn't it? If you think about it, nihilism turns out to be just the other side of the coin of realism. You know, it's like, if I exist, then things really matter. But if I don't exist, things don't matter at all. Very, very self-centered, really. But then, can we still value things, even knowing that this I only exists dependently, relatively, temporarily? That is a question that we can ask ourselves. Can we care about things, about the world, not from the place of I, from what can I get out of it? What does it mean about me? But rather, how to say, you know, maybe because caring and loving is maybe the most fundamental and natural longing of the heart to care because we want to care, to love because we want to love. Not because there is something in there for me, but just because there is this natural wish to, to give, to care, to love, to share. So to see through the self, to understand its empty nature, doesn't mean we don't care. On the contrary, true insight into the emptiness of self leads to less clinging. And this inevitably brings about more openness of our heart, more sensitivity. And then very naturally, compassion can arise and our habitual self-centeredness diminishes. I would like again to read a quote by Rob Babea. Seeing only in terms of self and habitually placing self at center stage of whatever situation or event transpired is not recognizing and including in its understanding the wider confluence of conditions that give rise to anything at all in the world. But seeing in terms of the wider web of conditions that come together to give rise to any action or result is a different, more open and more compassionate way of looking at what has happened or what is happening. So compassion comes naturally from seeing the relative, the empty nature of self. And as he says, not just compassion, but also a deep understanding of the workings of causes of, and conditions of karma. We understand that in every moment, the intention we form and act on has the power of shaping the next moment. 
and by becoming aware of our intentions and by choosing wise and wholesome intentions, we shape this self or the world constellation that is being born in every moment. And we see that we truly participate in this, either consciously aware or unconsciously, but we participate. So what we are, who we are, is dependent on the intentions that we bring into each moment. And there is so much, there is a tremendous power in those intentions. In this moment, do I choose to be the compassionate one or the one hurting others? Do I choose to stand up for something or do I choose to look the other way? I would like to read a quote by Lama Tillman. He's a German Mahamudra master, teacher um, in the Kaju tradition. We can take a different, more playful attitude without thinking that the experience has no relevance and without believing that it exists as an independent reality that holds me in its grip. We can help shape these worlds that are constantly being built up in the play of appearances. We are actors in this game. And depending on whether we see through this game or not, we call it nirvana or samsara. It is the same game, but it is experienced quite differently. Whether we like it or not, we are part of the game of what is going on, not just our own personal life. We are part of this world, what is going on in this world. And this means it does matter. Not because, you know, impacts me primarily, because it means something about me but because of all beings, it matters so much more than we usually think. What sense of self we entertain and cultivate or not. And from there, how we engage in this world from a place of emptiness and of compassion. And really at the same time, knowing that we can never pin this self down. So I would like to read the poem by Tiknatan to close. I'm sure many of you know it. Please call me by my true names, which really expresses so beautifully this understanding that who I am is much more open and flexible than we think and which is this poem which is at the same time also just such a beautiful expression of compassion please call me by my true names don't say that i will depart tomorrow even today i am still arriving Look deeply, 
every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I'm also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I'm the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. So let's just sit for a moment quietly. Quietly. 